0: Hey, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, we are very fortunate to have Shankar Swaminathan. He is a professor and chief of infectious disease at the Department of Medicine, University of Utah School of Medicine. I first met him during work with the NCCN guidelines for. Uh, Antimicrobials for Treatment and Prevention of Infections, and where he uh, co-chairs the guidelines. And uh, I was uh, blown away. So when he agreed to this interview, I was thrilled. Welcome. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I did my fellowship after my internal medicine residency at Harvard Medical School was a joint program back then with the Brigham, Beth Israel, and Dana Farber. And I actually went to that fellowship to work with my mentor, Elliot Keith at the time, who was, a, as you probably know, a world-renowned virologist and worked in his lab for several years, both during and after my fellowship there. Since then, I've been My own lab has worked on various aspects of EBV replication, its molecular biology, and have maintained my clinical activity and uh, mostly seeing immunocompromised transplant patients. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So, you're at the University of Utah, which I've only been in Salt Lake City on the airport on the way from uh, San Diego to the East Coast. but. Every time I see a picture of uh, the snow-capped mountains and the amazing topography of Utah, I get a little bit uh, jealous. What's it like living in Utah?
1: Well, the weather is actually nicer than on the East Coast in the winter. You don't have the the wet snow. It's, you know, very dry here. It's high desert. And so Mm -hmm. the snow is powdery and great for skiing, I guess. But, you know, you don't get that slush and gray ice and, you know, slush everywhere. And like right now, it's beautiful. There's flowers everywhere. So, it's, you know, as far as the, the climate goes, it's really very nice. And it's uh, it's a nice place to to live and bring up children. I've been here for almost 13 years now. And prior to that, I was there for about the same amount of time at the University of Florida where I was, of course, in the infectious diseases division and also co-directed the tumorology program in the cancer center there. Mm
0: -hmm. So you you decided that you had enough of the humidity and you were going for uh, the more arid environments.
1: Well, it it was really the the job opportunity that brought me out here. Of course. Um, And at the time when I joined the division, there were, I think, only... Three or four faculty who are still here. Most of the uh, others was a smaller division, and most of them were close to retirement. We now have over 20 faculty that have, you know, been attracted to come to the University of Utah, and it's a, it's a very young division. We have many faculty who work in HIV, travel, immunocompromised ID. Orthopedic ID, which we have a lot of because of all the skiing, I guess. Oh, yeah. And, and our general ID service. So it's it's very stimulating working with all these young, enthusiastic faculty. And many of them have, you know, made a name for themselves nationally. It's really gratifying to see. And one of the truly unique things about the University of Utah is ARUP laboratories, which mm-hmm. is an outgrowth of our. Of our academic system, and so it's a nonprofit, and what that means is, even though it's one of the largest clinical reference laboratories, they also plow all the the revenue back into research and development, not only diagnostics but also some basic research as well in microbiology.
0: And that, that's amazing. There's some. There must be something good that's happening in. Uh, in Utah and Salt Lake City, because uh, between University of Utah and ARUP on the one hand, and Intermountain Health, probably a uh, Red Sox, Yankees type of situation in terms of rivalry. uh, But uh, it just uh, the level of quality of medical care is, uh, is amazing.
1: Yeah, there's been a huge amount of growth here. And the only downside is that most of the views of the mountains have been obscured by all the buildings that have gone up. But we have a huge catchment area and we have a now a comprehensive, NCI designated comprehensive cancer center. So we, you know, are the closest such center for many parts of the Rocky Mountain West from Wyoming, Montana, Nevada, you know, a little bit of Colorado. But we have patients from all over New Mexico, Arizona, you name it. So this leads to a huge diversity of types of infectious diseases that we see as well. It's really very uh, interesting place to work.
0: Yeah, I've all those board questions about somebody at a cabin over 10,000 feet or whatever. They could probably play out for you guys.
1: Well, I thought I knew a lot before I came out here. But since then, I've seen a lot of Q fever, coccidioides, even plague and rabies, hantavirus, uh, and some other rickettsiosis and things that i would never seen before in other parts of the country.
0: Wow. So things that you see and that everybody sees are EBV, but just because we see them, we don't always know what to do about it. So how did you get involved with EBV? And then I'm going to ask you some, uh, I guess I'll ask you now, what is it about this virus that drives carcinogenesis?
1: So that's a very complex question. The virus, you know, was really discovered because of Burkitt's research in Africa. He was a, a missionary surgeon, and when he was working in Africa, in the sub-Saharan Africa, he noticed that there was a remarkable coincidence of Burkitt lymphoma, particularly in young people with these, you know, rapidly growing jaw and visceral tumors and areas where malaria was predominant and he was back in the uk and he was giving a lecture and anthony epstein was in the audience and he was very interested in this and they managed to get these tumor samples sent back from africa burkitt lymphoma samples and epstein looked at these under this new electron microscope that they had hmm. and uh, saw what looked like herpes virus particles mm. and that's what led to a lot of the subsequent work that showed that EBV was present in all cases of Burkitt lymphoma and that the virus was you know shown subsequently by work in a variety of people's laboratories to be the agent of mononucleosis and to be able to transform b cells in vitro and not only did it transform their phenotype, but immortalize them so that primary B cells, which would normally die in culture after a few days to weeks, could be kept alive indefinitely and proliferate uh, if they were infected with EBV. And so this is what you know has driven the decades of investigation into EBV's role as an oncogenic agent. But you know, what drives oncogenesis by EBV is is still a fertile field for investigation because although we've learned a lot, there are still a lot of aspects of it that are poorly understood. But EBV is, an, is involved in the causation of several types of lymphoma, but also the other cell type that it infects. Uh, epithelial cells, it causes nasopharyngeal carcinoma, primarily in southern China and other parts of the world, but also gastric carcinoma. In Japan and again in the Far East. So, in terms of lymphoma, though, its role is quite different in the different types of lymphoma that it causes. And we could perhaps start with the one that's easiest to understand in some ways is the type of lymphoma that occurs in highly immunocompromised individuals. So, in post-transplant proliferative diseases, and also in advanced aids.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So in, in those situations, at least to put it simply, the mechanism is really can be thought of as due to a lack of cellular immunity. Mm-hmm. And it it's what keeps those EBV-infected but latently infected cells from proliferating like they do in vitro. You know, if you infect B cells in vitro, they'll proliferate double every twenty-four to forty-eight hours. And if you don't keep passaging them, they'll rapidly take over your laboratory. And that's the rate of growth of some of these lymphomas that arise in these highly immunocompromised patients, very rapid, as you know in, in PTLD, for example. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: So in in those cases, the primarily CTL response is not there. To respond to the latent antigens that are expressed by that type of EBV-induced proliferation. So Mm -hmm. all the latent genes are expressed. The cells take on a typical activated phenotype and they grow rapidly. And in situations where it's possible to reduce the immunosuppression, as in transplantation, you can actually have spontaneous regression of those tumors as the immune system kicks in. Mm -hmm. But In other cases, you may need to use cytotoxic chemotherapy, and those proliferations can rapidly acquire secondary changes that make them frank lymphoma, where it's no longer possible for the immune system to, on its own, control them. Mm -hmm. And those tumors, when CD20 positive, can also be treated quite effectively with rituximab as a component of the lymphoma regimen. As is true with EBV-negative lymphomas as well, mm-hmm. the situation with Burkitt lymphoma is quite different. As there, the pathognomonic genetic change in Burkitt lymphoma is a c-myc translocation, mm-hmm. where c oncogene is translocated and is constitutively expressed. But there are other changes that that EBV, EBV's role in in many of these lymphomas in non-highly immunocompromised patients is related to how it establishes latency normally. So it infects naive B cells. And naive B cells, when they undergo maturation and undergo a germinal center reaction, gains entry into the memory B cell compartment by encounter with, with antigen and productive immunoglobulin gene rearrangements which allow them to survive and enter the memory B-cell compartment. EBV can be thought of as gaining access to this B-cell compartment by, in many cases, simulating that physiologic maturation and driving those cells forward. And in, in doing so, especially in the setting of Burkitt lymphoma, where many of these people who live in the malaria belt, particularly the children, are undergoing massive B cell stimulation, proliferation, splenomegaly mm. due to the constant bombardment by external pathogens. Mm. So you get this double whammy of sure. B cell mitogen, both physiologic from the pathogens as well as from EBV. Mm-hmm. And during the process of immunoglobulin gene rearrangement, EBV may enhance the likelihood that you get these MIC translocations,
2: uh-huh.
1: and it may have other roles in allowing them to survive when they normally would undergo apoptosis by expressing some of its own genes. And a second thing that it's thought to do in Burkitt pathogenesis is that it induces a B-cell gene called activation-induced cytidine deaminase, which is important for the somatic hypermutation that is involved in generating B-cell immunoglobulin diversity. So this can also promote mutagenesis, and is thought to play a role in the enhanced likelihood of having mutations that promote Burkitt lymphoma development. With Hodgkin's lymphoma, there may be a somewhat similar mechanism at play in that a large number of Hodgkin cells, which are derived from B-cells, show what would otherwise be crippling mutations. So if you, if you have B-cell rearrangements that are not productive, that is able to generate active immunoglobulin genes mm-hmm. that can function, recognize antigens, those cells would normally undergo apoptosis
2: mm-hmm.
1: in, in, in the lymph nodes and so on. But one of the EBV latent genes that are expressed during Hodgkin's lymphoma Uh, a latent membrane protein, is thought to be able to rescue those cells from undergoing the physiologic elimination by apoptosis. Mm -hmm. So it basically rescues these cells that it's in, and these can then subsequently give rise to Hodgkin's. And its role now in in the fourth type of lymphoma that it is involved in is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Mm -hmm. And diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is not universally by any means EBV positive, but a a very large number, more than in non-HIV patients, are EBV positive.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. You know, there's no one pathognomonic genetic signature as there is with Burkitt lymphoma for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. But in recent work, It's been shown that there's a subset of B cell genes, oncogenes and tumor suppressors that are drivers of diffuse large large Mm -hmm. B cell lymphoma. And some of the thinking is that EBD may provide activation of certain B cell pathways that normally would require mutation and thereby facilitate the development of of DLBCL by reducing the need for the number of mutations necessary to develop this type of lymphoma. So the EBV definitely may have a causative as well as maintenance role in that type of lymphoma as well, particularly in HIV patients. So, you know, if you were to look at it in sort of a big picture, the tricks that EBV uses to ensure latency and survival in the B-cell Mm-hmm. memory cell compartment are incidentally essential for its role in pathogenesis. Sure. You know, because it protects and rescues those potential bad actors and it also drives B cells to do things that they wouldn't normally do if it were not for the presence of the latent virus.
0: All in it's on this, in the service of its own survival.
1: Right. Right.
0: So I think you're absolutely right in that it was a seemingly simple question with a lot of uh, of nuance and uh, I remember as a college student I was first learning about viruses that transform cells the uh sarcoma virus but I think that although Rouse sarcoma virus was good educationally it's got nothing on EBV this EBV is much more sophisticated
1: Well you know it's interesting some of those rapidly transforming viruses that led to seminal discoveries about oncogenes Mm-hmm. the sark oncogene and which is it, you know the the whole concept of of a cellular oncogene was derived from the finding of these viral expression of proteins that could do the same thing is not really the s- same mechanism by which most human oncogenic viruses operate
0: uh huh yeah um, yeah very interesting so uh, I'm an infectious disease doctor. Uh, In some way, I'm kind of simplistic. Maybe uh, I see a virus, I want to kill a virus. And I can't tell you how many times when I've talked to people that actually know anything about ABV say, no, 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 it's not that simple. And you're not really going to get anything out of killing the virus. So here's a situation where you have a patient who's highly immunocompromised and is quite sick with undiagnosed until now lymphoma. And uh, as I mentioned, they're they're quite sick. They're actually uh, either in the ICU or heading toward the ICU with a lot of different inflammatory things going on. Maybe tumor lysis is involved in there. And somebody ordered an EBV viral load and it comes back at a million. And the simplistic infectious disease doctor that's interviewing you says, well, I got a drug that in the test tube kills this pretty well, Gancyclovir, and another one that is also kills it decently. Acyclovir. Why should or should I not use those in those situations?
1: So I think the answer to that question relates to the life cycle of the virus and what role it plays in B cell proliferation. Mm-hmm. So EBD, like all herpes viruses, has both a lit- lytic and a latent phase of its replication, mm-hmm. and the you know the alpha herpes viruses like. HSV and VZV cause disease, you know, the most terrible manifestation of HSV disease is HSV encephalitis and causes disease by lysing the host cells. So you get this necrotic encephalitis and there the virus is actively replicating and lysing the host cells. It's reactivated from latency. Mm -hmm. Now, EBV really doesn't cause disease in 99.99% of The human population that it infects. We're all, virtually all of us are infected with EBV, but Mm -hmm. it remains latent. And that's because of our CTL, because Mm -hmm. of our cytotoxic T lymphocytes and our cell mediated immunity. So, and we intermittently reactivate the virus reactivates and it can be shed in the saliva and it's transmitted unknowingly to, to the people that by horizontal transmission from saliva. Mm -hmm. So the disease that we're talking about, all the cancers that we're talking about are due to proliferation of B cells. Mm -hmm. And by and large, that proliferation is due to the virus existing in a latent state. That is, the virus is is a DNA circle in the nucleus of the cell and it's not making variants.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: If it did make a variant, it would actually lyse that host cell. Mm-hmm. And if we have time, I can tell you about some of the more novel experimental approach to using some of those characteristics to actually help kill tumor cells. But when you measure the viral load in the peripheral blood, even if you measure plasma, that is not including the cells that are in the blood, including the B cells that are mm-hmm. that are providing a large percentage of yeah. the viral DNA that you're measuring, mm-hmm. even in the cell-free plasma or serum, a lot of that DNA is coming from cell-associated virus, perhaps cells that are dying or that, are, you know, but have been released. And so that increased viral load is to a large degree reflective of the fact that there are a large number of EBD-infected, latently infected, proliferating tumor cells. Mm-hmm. In addition, there may be more for replication and release of virions, particularly in the highly immunosuppressed patient, such as the transplant patient or the mm-hmm. ACE patient. Now, even if you were to kill off all replicating virus, stop the replication dead in its tracks with gancyclovir or acyclovir, which you really, you know, can do, your viral load may not functionally decrease that much. And you would do nothing to the tumor cells. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Tumor cells cannot be killed by a Mm cyclovir. It can only stop virus reactivation and production of virions. Okay. But, you know, I've been asked, well, if there's a lot of virus being produced, couldn't they be infecting more cells and, you know, causing more EBV-infected cells? It's possible, but... You're really a dollar short and a day late, or maybe 30 years late, to be treating with a cyclovir when the disease process is being driven by proliferating latently infected cells. Now, that said, there is now increasing evidence that there is some lytic replication, even if it's not productive of virions, that occurs in certain stages and types of malignancy. -hmm. And that they may contribute to the malignant phenotype of those cancer cells. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, acyclovir is not going to hurt. You're still going to require lymphoma therapy, unless it's PTLD, when backing off an immunosuppression by itself may, may do a lot. But, you know, so I don't object to using acyclovir, but it is. It's not going to do much when it comes mm-hmm, to actual mm-hmm. cancer treatment.
0: Now, how about the situation where you have a uh, transplant patient and they are EBV negative? We get that everyone's in a blue moon. And of course, the donor is almost invariably going to be EBV positive because um you know, that's how most people are. So, I guess this might happen most commonly in a child who has not yet had ABV as the recipient. And the viral load is followed and it hovers around 10,000 or so. And there's a, um, a desire to try to get that viral load lower or to use some sort of prophylaxis, if you will. And every time I talk to uh, my colleague in Ontario, he's always saying, Don't do it, it's not going to get you anything.
1: Well, I think, so if we talk about solid organ transplants, I think, you know, when you have a high-risk patient, donor positive, recipient negative, and highly immunosuppressed as in a heart or lung transplant particularly, for example, I think the problem is that when you look at the studies that have been done, you will see rising EBV loads in a large number of patients who do not develop PTLD. Mm -hmm. And you actually can see PTLD develop in people where the viral load is not rising. Okay. And I think this is reflective of the other things that have to go on to develop the the lymphoma, Mm -hmm. which is why you see it in EBV negative patients as well.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so for example you can see a relatively low viral load that doesn't increase but the patient presents with a intestinal lymphoma that's EBV positive Mm
2: -hmm.
1: so it has problems with sensitivity as well as with the predictive value of a positive so you're going to potentially be I don't think that we have the discrimination to be able to just treat people with rituximab with a clear cutoff as to what the either threshold or rate of increase of the viral load would be. Because you'd be treating a lot of people with rituximab, which is not without its attendant consequences in people who are already immunosuppressed.
2: Sure. To
1: prevent one case of PTLD. I think what one can do is certainly monitor their viral load potentially, even though, again, one has to do a cost-benefit analysis, but in patients for a particularly high risk, and use that as a canary in the coal mine to examine that patient more closely, both clinically as well as with imaging.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? So a few years ago, there was an assay that was called Immuno which was, uh, it, it, I think it was ATP-based, and it, 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 it was supposed to try to get at the net state of immunosuppression. And it didn't really pan out, but uh, in some situations, we use BK virus and EBV as sort of our monitors of, is our patient over-immunosuppressed? So is that something that you're doing out west as well?
1: No, we're not. But I think, you know, there's been a lot of interest in in this, I think, using some other very common viruses as well. I think there's been work done with vanilla viruses and other viruses. And don't think that they're ready for prime time yet. Mm -hmm. I I think it's very promising, but I I think, you know, I can envision a situation where people don't have, uh, may have what appears to be an overall fairly immunosuppressed state, but many of those patients don't develop PTLD. You know, so I think, as is the case with CMV, I think these things are very promising if one had a really good measure of pathogen-specific functional cellular immunocompetence. But I'm not aware of we're certainly not using that, those tests here and i think as was the case with you know just standardization across centers you know we up until relatively recently that was a problem even with just measuring cmv viral load yep so there is that 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 issue of test variability
0: yeah, and we still see that now occasionally when a viral load is measured at say quest or LabCorp versus r laboratory here and you get different numbers and you don't know if the patient is uh getting better or worse and you know that you always say you'll know if the patient's getting better or worse by how they're feeling but sometimes cnb yes. can be sneaky and that they can actually be getting worse and not feeling all that different
1: well as you know i mean i think this the same issue and some of it i i believe has to do with lymphocytes in and uh, other cells in the intestine mm-hmm. So, you know, you can see CMV colitis in the absence of a particularly high peripheral CMV load. Anyway,
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. So continuing with the mysteries of EBV, every once in a while we get a patient with uh, hemophagocytic syndrome that, that comes in and with its various variants of, uh, of of hemophagocytic syndrome. And again, curious as to whether an antiviral would help to slow the process down? Or again, is the horse out of the barn and treating the uh, EBV does not make a difference?
1: Generally, I think that's true. I always get asked and people want to do it and I don't stop them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, lymphohistiocytosis is is quite a heterogeneous syndrome with a relatively common phenotype. But EBV is one of the most common drivers of it. And I think a lot of it is linked with the fact that there are genetic abnormalities in many of these patients that lead to a inability to control EBV, but also the sort of common theme with HLH is this abnormal lymphoid and NK response that leads to the manifestations of HLH. So that underlying genetic abnormality which can be quite varied, is can the, that episode of HLH is treated by the HLH protocols. Mm-hmm. And it's written, driven by EBV-associated lymphoproliferation, again, due to the underlying inability to properly control and respond to EBV infection as an in excellent lymphoproliferative syndrome, then rituximab can be useful, again, to just kill off the proliferating B cells, which is What's providing the ongoing stimulus? But again, acyclovir is not going to be the key thing there. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, many of these patients require hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the pediatricians have a large role to play in many, much of this and with genotyping and identifying, both in to prepare for potential future transplantation, but also to help identify the underlying genetic cause if there is one
0: yeah it it seems to me now maybe it's referral bias but it seems to me like hlh is more common or more commonly diagnosed than it used to be is that your sense too or is it referral bias Mm -hmm. that we're a big center so people get sent here
1: i'm not sure i suspect that a large number of cases were never diagnosed in the Mm -hmm. past and certainly i think people's antennae are up more You know, we've had cases that were diagnosed where that was not the initial thought in anyone's mind. And I suspect there's a lot of undiagnosed cases
2: of
1: cytokine storm of unknown etiology.
0: So, now that we've had all the easy questions, now we get to (laughs) the hard questions. So, uh, there... Our our patients, and I've actually never seen this in my practice because it's so focused on immunocompromised patients, but reading in the lay press, you'll hear about people with chronic EBV. And is EBV causing it? Is it that everybody has chronic EBV and that there's something else? What do you know about this condition?
1: Well, I think, you know, that there's a syndrome referred to as chronic active EBV. Uh-huh. And that's an unfortunate moniker, I think, because it gets perhaps confused with various syndromes of uncertain etiology, such as chronic fatigue and other persistent syndromes, post-viral syndromes. But chronic active EBV is something that is really a lymphoproliferative disease. we see a few cases of this every year, usually in young patients, where they get their primary infection with EBV, get mono, but they never properly recover.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: they often have persistent and severe symptoms characteristic of mononucleosis, such as fatigue, splenomegaly, an atypical lymphocytosis, etc., etc., fever, lymphadenopathy. But they also can have pneumonitis that comes and goes various types of inflammation Mm -hmm. and these are characterized by lymphocytic infiltrates and and i've seen at least one or two cases of children who or as a child had mono documented by molecular methods by and so on but then present years later with a second Clear-cut case of mononucleosis, and what if what's present in many of these cases is that they have not had a normal immune response to the virus. Mm-hmm. If you or I, when we got mono or asymptomatic EBV infection for the first time, we seroconvert mm-hmm. and we have a characteristic pattern of antibodies to the latent genes, nuclear antigens, as well as to lytic antigens, and these remain positive for life. Some of these patients don't ever develop a normal serologic profile post-infection, and they will have quite high viral loads, they will have hepatitis, and so on. And many of these patients are at risk of subsequent development of lymphoma. So it's it's a type of lymphoproliferative disease, and it runs a spectrum. In the West, this, these tend to be B cell lymphoproliferative diseases. And mm. in primarily in Japan, but in other parts of the world, these are also primarily T and NK EBV infected lymphoproliferative diseases. Mm. And these are a, a diag- not not so much a diagnostic, but a therapeutic challenge and often may require stem cell transplantation, which may be successful depending on the underlying disorder. Now, post-viral chronic symptoms and syndromes are just like with COVID.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I think it's important not to just lump them under one diagnostic category, you know, because I think there's clearly a whole spectrum of illness. Some of it is directly related to viral infection. Others are related to an aberrant immune response And some are not due to the coincidence of the preceding viral infection at all. You know, some patients who present with what they've been told is a post-viral or post-infectious syndrome turn out to have lupus that wasn't diagnosed, and so on. So, I think that's a completely different set of issues.
0: Oh, very helpful. Now, something that we went through. COVID and even before then, there's a lot of uh, interest in repurposed drugs. So if you've been through the uh, JC virus battles, you know that uh, there's been a lot of drugs that have been repurposed and without success. Maybe the last thing I heard about JC virus repurposing has been uh, uh, PD-1 inhibitors. And that actually makes uh, some mechanistic sense, but my heart's been broken too many times with PML. But I I saw that you've done some work on spironolactone as a repurposed drug. Tell us about
2: that.
1: So let me make it clear. I wasn't trying to, we weren't trying to make a new drug to treat patients with or even repurpose a drug to treat patients with. So the reason that we investigated compounds that might have antiviral activity with EBD was really a very basic wet lab sort of goal. Which mm-hmm. is, we were studying this protein that's essential for herpes virus replication. There's a homolog in each herpes virus. And the one in EBV is one that I've studied throughout my career. And it's very interesting because it's not a typical transcription factor, but it has a unique mechanism of action distinct from the DNA replicative enzymes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and its mode of action is still being studied. And so we, in our quest to find out how this protein worked and why it was essential for transcription of, of certain EBD genes, did a, a high-throughput screening assay of many, many compounds of known function. And so when in screening this library, we expected to find drugs that might affect nuclear transport of RNA or RNA metabolism, because that's how SM is thought to work, this EBD SM protein. But... To our surprise, we found that one of the strongest inhibitors of function of this EBV protein was spironolactone. And we almost rejected it because, it, you know, it's a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. Mm-hmm. And so, but it turned out that it has a completely different and independent function. And we know that it's independent now because we've made some spironolactone homologs that don't have mineralocorticoid blocking activity. Mm -hmm. but still have this anti-EBD function. And the way that it works is very interesting and has taught us a lot in basic molecular biology that EBD requires the cellular protein that's involved in transcription called XPB. And it's also involved in DNA repair. And this is one of the proteins whose function is deficient in xeroderma pigmentosum. Those patients Mm -hmm. have deficient abnormal DNA repair. But anyway, EBV has co-opted this protein to help it transcribe some of its genes. Okay, so this was what we were hoping to find, is something mechanistic about how the uh-huh. virus works. And but then we tested it, and it's quite active, like a cyclovir, in preventing lytic replication of the virus and reactivation. So again, it's not going to help us any more than a cyclovir. You know, acyclovir is quite good, but it's not going to help us with lymphomas. Sure. On the other hand, you know, and you don't want to use a drug that has all the side effects of spironolactone, where acyclovir has virtually none.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, spironolactone, as you know, has hormonal and, sure. and, you know, diuretic effects and antihypertensive effects and so on. But we can divorce those two uh, functions. And we have some compounds that can potentially just block, uh, what it does is it degrades the cellular XPB protein. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so the virus can no longer use the cellular XPB in the cells in which it is replicating. And so the virus stops replicating. So we might be able to find some alternative drugs that might be useful to just like we use prophylaxis with acyclovir in immunocompromised patients and so mm-hmm. on. But this is, you know, I, I, I don't want to make this seem like, um, uh, because I get queries from people as to whether we're doing clinical trials. And we're mm-hmm. really just, you know, using these drugs as, as tools to do understand the basic mechanisms of virus replication for the most part.
0: No, that's helpful. Yeah, I'm certainly not going to go to the Sanford Guide to look up my spironolactone dose for uh, a patient with EBV viremia. Correct. So, a few years ago, we uh, encountered Zika, and I saw that you and your group had published a uh, case report about non sexual transmission of uh, of Zika. Tell us about that one.
1: So, this created quite a stir, and I think you probably read this. It was reported because it was the First non sexual transmission from casual contact that had been reported. And it was a, it was a, it's really a fascinating story. We had a patient who, who died in our ICU. And we had originally assumed based on the clinical progression and his travel history that it was dengue fever. But there were some aspects of it that didn't really fit with dengue. And We had sent the serology for dengue and the patient expired quite rapidly, despite the best supportive care that we could provide. And it's an interesting story. At that time, we were at ARUP. They were trying to develop a laboratory design test for, uh, Zika. So what they were doing was taking all the samples that had been submitted for dengue and similar diseases that, you know, occur in the same geographic areas as Zika and doing the PCR on those just to have as patient samples for negative and positive, but mostly for negative tests. And so they were validating their PCR tests for Zika uh, with spike samples and with de-identified patient samples. And this particular sample went, was sky high. It was higher than their positive control. And so, the people in the micro lab called me and said, what's going on? We're getting this, you know, through the roof value. And I told them about the case. And so, they confirmed with further titration that this was an extremely high, millions and millions of copies of the Zika virus, which is not normally seen in, you know, uh, adults. And so, this patient had For whatever reason, we're not really completely sure, and you can read about it in this report, as in the New England Journal a few years back, uh, that the patient had a runaway infection with Zika and died, which doesn't usually happen in adults. So about a week later, I had asked the family members to come in so that I could tell them about this diagnosis, and also just so they could know, because they had been told that it was probably dengue that he had Died from. And during that conversation, I noticed that one of the family members had conjunctivitis. And initially, I had thought it was because of crying or, you know, just some allergies or something. And I asked him, How long have your eyes been red like that? And he told me that it had come on suddenly. And then, you know, he'd had a mild illness, but his eyes were still red. And so I took him down to the clinic and drew blood and urine and so on and we demonstrated that he had an acute zika virus infection wow and his only contact uh was with his father when he was ill wow and so the cdc came and they did extensive investigation to make sure that it was an arthropod born secondary transmission from the index case to the family member so it was a very unusual case because Secondary transmission like this does not usually occur. And I think it was a reflection of the fact that the viral loads in even tears, conjunctival secretions, we now know that Zika is shed in multiple bodily fluids, including tears or conjunctival secretions. And so it uh, was probably a reflection of the fact the viral loads were extremely high in the index patient.
0: Wow, wow, that's an amazing case, and I, I'm glad that it wasn't a harbinger of things to come.
1: Well, I think that's what people were worried about. We screened everybody who had been in that room, you know, all the caregivers, and it was quite a Herculean effort by the CDC and by the infection prevention staff at the hospital. But no, no other person sera converted.
0: Wow. So we've reached uh, a little bit beyond the hour mark, and I think that I still have at least five or six more hours of talking with you to just uh, <laughs> scratch the surface. Uh, but uh, I, I wanted to maybe wrap up and get your thoughts. Uh, you are a chair of a division, of a large division. You're looking at our field of infectious diseases. What are the things that excite you? What are the things that concern you? And why should somebody who's listening to this podcast want to uh, advance in the field?
1: So, The things that excite me and concern me are often the same. So a prime example of that would be what the role of molecular testing is going to be going forward. And the exciting part of it is is the incredible power of these techniques. You know, so much of what we learned in medical school and in microbiology and infectious diseases is now obsolete that is, you know, traditional clinical microbiology, you know, knowing the names of the different augers and the, you know, the different types of media and the different types of reactions and, and so on. These are, many are of historical interest and they've been replaced by RNA, ribosomal RNA sequencing, uh, all the way to, you know, malditoff to whole genome sequencing, deep sequencing, and direct sequencing of blood and other other fluids, tissues, both directed and agnostic methods, as well as these panels that use these various techniques in, in large panels. And so this is great, right? We have a level of sensitivity and ability to look for things without knowing what we're looking for. Which is just, you know, is mind-boggling. There have been so many cases of people with unusual syndromes where either new viruses, new pathogens, or unexpected variants of old pathogens have been discovered. And we would have just written them off as unexplained deaths in the past. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I worry about the inability of people to apply Bayesian analysis to laboratory findings. Mm. And, you know, we're we're used to having dichotomous answers. And there's a tendency to want a test to tell us whether we feeble humans are right or wrong. And that way lies a real difficult problem because you know if you get a positive beta d glucan as an example people want me to tell them whether that means a person has a fungal infection or not and you know why for a variety of reasons that's just very very difficult to do
2: yeah yeah
1: it has to do with pretest probabilities it has to do with a variety of factors and when you have a panel that invariably has a lot of tests on it for which the pretest probability is virtually nil and you run that panel on every patient with a common syndrome such as fever or even meningitis you're going to have a large number of false positives there are going to be more false positives than true positives and that's a very hard concept for people to wrap their head around
0: i think it it's wrapped up into an outsourcing problem in that that we have outsourced our memory to the iPhone that I'm holding here and Wikipedia, we've outsourced our morality to the market or to the politicians depending on how you like it. and we've outsourced our um, clinical reasoning to the laboratory test that comes back as a positive or a negative. And we need to bring that back. and first of all, you got the history, the physical, the differential diagnosis, the laboratory test.
1: Yeah, I I think you know that's a something to be desired, if you will, in general. And I I fear that some of these tests are going to just make that more difficult.
0: Particularly you know? when they tie it in with artificial intelligence.
1: Yes, although I you know I'm a little bit optimistic about that. I've been I've been presenting cases to chat GPT and it's not very good. Yet. Yet. But what it does do, if you give it the right data, it is not very perceptive, but it's quite inclusive. And you, I think it's very easy relatively to design something that will at least give people a list of things they should think about further. That mm-hmm. they may might have anchored and not thought about. Sure, but but I, I I think the to get back to your original question about what excites me, you know, I think the other thing that I think is exciting is that even though it, it's not particularly a happy thought, is that I think infectious diseases is. You know, we thought maybe it was all cut and dried. And the last three years have shown that there's just an expanding universe of things that are going to keep us occupied. And with all the ecological changes that are occurring, they're going to drive some of these not only new pathogens, but old pathogens in new roles Mm. and new functions. I think we're going to see some of these, you know, diseases that we don't think of in the U.S. in many new locales, it was not that long ago when people, when the founders of this nation used to leave Washington because of yellow fever and similar swamp diseases. Mm -hmm. Now, you could argue that Washington is still a swamp, but it doesn't have, you know, epidemic and endemic malaria, yeah. yellow fever, dengue, and so on. But I think there's the potential for all sorts of changes in infectious disease in our lifetime.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, what happened in India during the Delta wave was a uh, an eyebrow razor with the mucormycosis outbreak. I am somewhat of an expert in mucormycosis, and I've seen less than 100 cases in my life, and there were people that were seeing that in a week.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. A new or at least a expanded role for a particular mechanism of super infection.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me. This will be a podcast that I think people will have to listen to probably more than once because there's so much in there. And to the listeners, until next time, thank you so much. And uh, looking forward to additional conversations.